So what's the deal? No sooner had an emergency EU summit begun, Hungary lifted its objection to a 50 million euro lifeline for Ukraine, the aid vital for a country whose support from Washington is currently, well, basically frozen. So what did Viktor Orban get in return? The Hungarian prime minister quick to clarion another cause, cash squeeze farmers who saw the summit as a chance to besiege Brussels and air their case. How do the current crises play in the voters' minds ahead of European elections? And what would the outcome uh, for Ukraine had been if the same summit had happened after next June? For now, it's still winter, and the stalemate on the battlefields uglier than ever. What are Ukraine's prospects as Europe slowly ramps up its defense industry to prepare for the eventuality of a more Putin-friendly Donald Trump returning to the White House? Today in the France 24 debate, we're talking about Europe's lifeline for Ukraine that's just been approved. With us from Brussels, France 24 uh, correspondent Dave Keating, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, Francois. Uh, also with us, Anastasia Shapochkina, president of the Eastern Circles Think Tank. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Uh, welcome back as well to former NATO political desk officer Samantha de Benzer and currently with the Think Tank Chatham House. How are Good things? evening. And uh, we're with, as well, former French ambassador to Russia, Jean de Bignasti, researcher at IRIS, the French Institute for International and Strategic Affairs. Good to see you. The uh, France 24 debate, where you can react on the hashtag F24debate. Yeah, at the last EU summit in December, Hungary's prime minister single-handedly blocked this four-year funding plan for Ukraine. This time, it took less than an hour to expedite the deal. Charlie James has more. Just an hour of summit negotiations and a deal is struck. The European Union agrees on a new 50 billion euro aid package for Ukraine, overcoming weeks of veto threats from Hungary. The European Commission president called it a special day. We all know that Ukraine is fighting for us, so we will support them with the necessary funding and provide them with the much needed predictability they deserve. Ahead of the summit, leaders piled pressure on Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, but his lifting the veto, and that quickly, was a surprise. Orban said he accepted the deal after receiving assurance that withheld EU funds from Hungary would not end up in Ukraine. We received an offer last night, this morning, and we finally negotiated a control mechanism that guarantees the reasonable use of the money, and we received a guarantee that Hungary's funds cannot go to Ukraine. Russia's closest ally in the EU, Orban, had demanded the ability to carry out an annual review of the aid package with a right to veto it. But other EU leaders don't want Orban to have that control over Ukraine's future. Joining the EU summit by video link, Ukraine's president thanked EU leaders. This is a clear signal that Ukraine will withstand and that Europe will withstand. Uh, it is also really important that this decision was taken unanimously by all. Nearly two years after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the nation's economy desperately needs support. This package will send EU funds to Ukraine through 2027. Okay, so Dave Keating, there's two uh, ways of spinning what happened uh, this Thursday. One, you saw that clip that uh, Viktor Orban uploaded to Facebook and that we showed a little bit of in, in that report. Uh, the other, uh, this is Italian newspaper Corriere della Sera, quoting a member of the Italian delegation who was present that morning in that six-way huddle that took place with Orban. 
Uh, one of the leaders apparently saying, we're going to suspend you from the EU's life. We're going to retire your right to vote. We're going to freeze your country. And I mean, it's interesting because uh, there there was uh, this this idea that uh, uh, they were really putting the squeeze. Add to that the fact that Hungary's currency uh, had uh, uh, flopped uh, earlier uh, in the week on news that the EU was uh, this time ready to play hardball. As you can see from this graph, it's since rebounded. So so which one is it, Dave? What happened? We simply don't know. I mean, there's all kinds of contradictory reports floating around right now about why Orban uh, relented and ended his veto seemingly with nothing significant in return. Um, we have the spin from the Hungarian side, which is that the EU agreed uh, to an annual, as Orban's top aide put it on Twitter, an annual renegotiation there's no renegotiation. There's going to be a review conducted by the Commission in the form of a report each year that's submitted to the Council. After two years, the Council could request that the Commission uh, do a kind of renegotiation or a renewed proposal for the funding, but that would have to be requested unanimously. Not so let me let me ask you let me ask you about this member let state. Let me ask you about this because on Twitter he went further. Um, he said, quote, mission accomplished. Hungary's funds will not end up in Ukraine and we have a control mechanism at the end of the first and second year. Is that an accurate statement? It's not an accurate statement. I could give him the benefit of the doubt in saying that in that first part, he means Hungarian funds won't go toward military uh, expenditure in Ukraine. That's still possible because this money is for the, the budget. This is money for Ukraine in general. Uh, separately, there's the European Peace Facility, which is supposed to provide military support to Ukraine. Ireland and I believe Austria already have an exemption to that. They're contributing to that fund, but none of their money can go toward uh, lethal arms. And my understanding is Hungary may be joined that, may somehow also be included in that. But that has nothing to do with this money. This was money from the EU budget, generally for Ukrainian aid. And again, as for the renegotiation, as they're putting it, there is no renegotiation. It's an annual review. I don't see why anyone would have objected to an annual review of how the money is being spent in the form of a report. What the EU 26 didn't want was Orban having the ability to hold the EU over the fire like this every year. Uh, I don't think anyone was willing to even countenance that. So, Jean de Glignasty, did this time the European Union play hardball with Hungary, or are we going to find out at some later date that, you know, there's been some concession on rule of law or something? Yes, well, there are some concessions. You know, it's part of the usual uh, give and take inside the uh, European framework. And uh, I mean, he must have been under pressure when the currency started to drop at the beginning of the week. Yeah, indeed. And that's a good argument, but I don't think that uh, the EU tried to uh, put pressure on the foreign. I don't think so. I mean, it's the result of uh, uh, Hungary's position. But anyway, the experience show that, uh, shows that uh, no single country can oppose unanimity uh, such a long time. I mean, uh, at the end of the row, you can find some kind of consensus. Samantha Bender. 
Yeah, so my understanding is that what he obtained was the uh, promise to unfreeze funds that had been promised to Hungary at the end of last year, uh, the 20 billion euros that were frozen because of rule of law concerns. That's already been announced. So, so, so that, that was unfrozen and that was probably part of the concession. As a, as a, when it goes to what he was saying about Hungarian money won't be going to Ukraine, this is actually a response to some fake news that was going around in the Hungarian media suggesting that the money that was frozen, the 20 billion that he, he wanted unfrozen, that was unfrozen, was going to be used for Ukraine instead. So what he's actually saying is that, oh, well, we're getting the money, it's not going to go to Ukraine. It's a kind of very sneaky way of, of presenting this as a victory. But uh, he did have, there were bilateral meetings yesterday with, with Scholz, with Macron, with, uh, with von der Leyen and with Meloni. And at some point, Mark Rutter and Donald Tusk from Poland joined. So it wasn't that the council meeting this morning was just quickly arranged everything very quickly. There had been meetings last night. Pressure was undoubtedly put onto Orban, and I'm sure that some concessions were made as well. Yeah, if Orban's more isolated, it's also because, well, he recently lost a friend in Warsaw with recent elections, ousting the populist nationalist right. There is no problem with so-called, you know, Ukraine fatigue, for sure. We have urban fatigue now here in Brussels. We have so many things to, to solve. Look at the street, not only in Brussels. And, of course, uh, what we need today is to, to strengthen our unity around Ukraine and uh, versus Russia and its aggressive policy. I can't understand, I can't accept this this very strange and very egoistic game of uh, Viktor Orban. Uh, Anastasia Szapeczkina, is the uh, new prime minister of Poland being the former president of the European Council, the game changer in this story? Uh, definitely uh, having Poland back to the normal European family uh, and not to the corner of the aberrations is very uh, comforting and is going to be very reinforcing also, especially for Ukraine, of course, to have the prime minister who is open to again, present Poland as an ally of Ukraine, which is a position that Poland saw deteriorate, let's say, in the last months, especially due to internal political pressure on the government and uh, due to many factors. I think that in general, it's, 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 uh, it's very good that Poland is back on this, on this, uh, uh, on this terrain. But especially more importantly, Poland itself had a lot of issues with justice, with uh, the rule of law inside and the freedom of the media. And having Poland kind of now being retransferring the retransformation back again makes kind of one Hungary less in the European Union. So it strengthens the whole body of the European Union and their political decision-making, yes. Makes it, makes it harder for them, as, as was said earlier, to, to hold out uh, for, for, for a long time. Uh, now, uh, Viktor Orban, again, painting this as a victory, uh, and uh, after one of his surrogates last week organized a farmer's protest in Brussels, uh, he also was quick to express support for the Europe-wide farmers movement that took its case to the EU summit this uh, Thursday, even had his picture taken with them on uh, Wednesday evening on the eve of the summit. One of their gripes is Ukraine's current tariff-free imports, uh, exports into the EU, European Commission, this, uh, uh, on the eve of the summit, serving up a concession on that score. In essence, this is an emergency break that if the Commission were to see that the imports of these sensitive products were exceeding those average import levels, then tariffs could be reimposed on these products to ensure that import volumes 
do not significantly exceed those of previous years. I don't want to get too technical, Dave Keating, but can we say that uh, farmers uh, are more successful on pressuring the European Commission than Viktor Orban, uh, particularly because their irate over what they feel is being undercut by the competition with the tariffs that were lifted since Vladimir Putin's invasion? Yeah, I think if you wanted to put it very simply, you could say farmers won today, Viktor Orban lost. It's not quite that simple, but uh, farmers have already gotten a lot of concessions, both from the French government, and Emmanuel Macron uh, reiterated those in today's press conference. He actually uh, uh, provided more detail on what they're going to be doing, but also from the EU. Uh, you know, they got the, the extension of the tariff-free access for Ukrainian goods. That's not what the farmers want. They would have wanted that to end. But they did get this emergency break, which should be some comfort, although it's kind of unclear how high the bar is for that emergency break to kick in. And then they also got the concession of removing these green requirements, setting aside a fallow land uh, for at least this year until 2025. That's been scrapped. Those were both announced yesterday, and then today, uh, President von der Leyen announced that she'll be coming out with a proposal to reduce red tape for farmers within the next three weeks. So the farmers have gotten quite a lot. Uh, they also got a review uh, uh, promised by September of all EU agricultural law. I think, for one, on one hand, it shows what can happen when the French government really leans on the European Commission. Uh, but also, these protests were very widespread, and certainly politicians have taken notice of all these farmers' protests. What does it mean for Ukraine, Anastasia Shapochkina? This means that there is internal political pressure within the European Union, which is uh, going to be used to pressure external politics. So this is a similar dynamic that we see in the U.S., where, uh, let's say, the financial military aid to Ukraine is tied to, uh, let's say, a border control issue, and that is how the internal politics get to drive it, in addition to the resistance to the support of Ukraine. Because we, we spoke to a diplomatic source earlier this week who recognized that there's going to be a need for a compromise, that they can't just tariff-free be sending their food goods, their, their fertilizers. Europe their has to be consistent. If it says we are, we started the uh, um, uh, we started the association agreement in 2013. They, they started, then it was implemented a couple of years later. We started the accession negotiations. Then the next step is we facilitate trade. That's the whole point of all those agreements. Hun uh, Hungary and Poland were in exactly the same area, in exactly the same shoes, just about 20 years ago, and they weren't complaining back then. They also took a place from the market, from the French farmers, for example, from the German farmers, who no doubt were felt very pushed. Yet today, when Poland is the biggest recipient of the agricultural policy aid of the European Union, it is not complaining. And that is a consequence. The, having Poland being the French recipient is the consequence for the French farmer of the political decision to have Europe as a, members, as a union of 27 member states and not of six. Mm. What if it's a long war? Because right now, some of the exports are going out through the Black Sea. A lot of them, a lot more of them are now are going out over land. Well, if it's a long war, first of all, there'll be a lot less grain to be exported because there'll be more, part of, more of Ukraine will be mined and there'll be less people to actually farm the fields. So it would be a disaster for Ukraine. It could also be a disaster for the rest of the world because Ukraine feeds 
a large part of the world. We saw what happened in Africa when the the, the, the exports through the Black Sea were slowed down. We, we saw the alerts that were being raised about potential famine in parts of the world that are very far removed from Ukraine. So in a way, all this highlights the need to help Ukraine finish this war as, as soon as possible. And again, it also highlights the risk of what would happen if Russia wins the war, Russia is able to end up controlling most of Ukraine and the rest of the world being blackmailed by Russia because Russia would then control Ukraine's grain exports. So all of these things are, are, are really tied together. And you're absolutely right, Anastasia, Anastasia when you say that you know the, the French have been complaining about cheap Polish, cheap Czech, cheap Hungarian agricultural goods in France. And so now we've just got the, the, the border is being moved further east and, and the complaints are being moved further west. And w what is tragic in all this is, of, are of course, the concessions made on the Green Deal. Because I sometimes feel that as, as humanity here, we're faced with, okay, a quick death um, by bombing from Putin or a slow death by global warming. And it seems that until world leaders, and we'll start with Europe, get together and look at all these issues together, not separately, well, we're doomed either way, which uh, right. is, uh, is, is unfortunate. There's not, there's not a holistic approach, uh, Jean de Grignasty, between the war in Ukraine uh, the uh, climate crunch, uh, the post-COVID inflation? Well, that sort of problem led to Brexit, in fact. I mean, when, I, I think when Europe pays $50 billion, uh, it's entitled to protect a bit itself, all the more than uh, there is a political risk in uh, Germany, in France and everywhere. There could be some change of government, there could be some... Uh, Hungary exit, there could be, well, perhaps it would not be a loss, but uh, anyway. So there is a political risk for Europe now, and I think Europe has to at least regulate. It's not the question of helping, helping or not uh, uh, Ukraine, but we have to regulate, we have to take account of our own population and our our own balance of power. And uh, hence the, those initial measures that were, uh, we heard a clip about uh, announced on Wednesday. Bypassing the Black Sea for farm exports, <coughs> one of the challenges currently facing Ukraine, for the first time in nearly two years, it seems to have a chain of command issue. Meet Valery Zaluzhny, the head of the armed forces. Every piece of our land is precious to us every piece of our land. And whether it's Bakhmut or Avdivka, we will defend it as long as we have the strength. This week surfaced reports that weeks of brewing tension between the popular general and President Zelensky had come to a head, and that he'd been kicked, uh, he was to be kicked upstairs to head uh, of the National Security Council. The Reuters news agency even quoted a source that stated the job of commander-in-chief had been offered to ground forces commander Alexander Zariski. The Economist also floated the name of military intelligence head Kirilo Budanov. For now, though, status quo. Both men looked damaged by the row, says The Economist, and the open dispute between Ukraine's political leadership and its military command are worrying Ukraine's main allies. Meanwhile, in a parallel universe, uh, the said uh, Valery Zeluzhny uh, this Thursday, uh, coming up with a working paper that he's published uh, 
uh, Anastasia say, talking about, uh, um, this is uh, according to the Reuters News Agency, calling for a completely new state system of technological rearmament, as if nothing is wrong. Is something wrong, though? Yeah, uh, so the disagreement between the military and political command, which is normal that military commander uh, is not has a boss who is a civilian, is normal. It's the same type of disagreement we've seen in wars, uh, American Civil War, notoriously, right? Lincoln changing military commanders like gloves, but... And if, and if Zelensky doesn't change him, does he, he looks weak. No, just I want, I want to get to my points. Sorry, yeah. it's just a premise <laughs> to say. However, that's where the comparison may be ending because the reason, for example, it made sense during American Civil War to change military commanders until we get General Grant was because Lincoln wasn't able to see any victories with any of the commanders and one was worse than the other. And what the reason for changing Zeluzhny here is the desire to react to the Western demands to change something. However, not only Zaluzhny was leading the Ukrainian armed forces when Ukraine obtained its only biggest victories, but also he is definitely the last person to blame for any of the defeats that is facing because the only reason it's facing defeats is because it isn't, it, Russia has today three times more ammunition, Ukrainians have to save ammunition because they don't have ammunition at all, the supplies are not coming, and there is nothing to fight with because Ukraine is dependent 100% on the US and the EU uh, for its military supplies. It changed Zeluzhny and put Napoleon in his place. He would be in, in two days in the same trenched position <laughs> as Zeluzhny is today. And it would absolutely not add anything because on top of it, it would add, create a perfect political storm inside for Zelensky because Zeluzhny's popularity is 88% today estimated according to the Ukrainian polls, while Zelensky's is in the 60s. So you're saying don't fire him? So I was, I'm saying he would then create single-handedly actually craft, carve out, out of a marble, a formidable political opponent at a moment when Zelensky is questioned more and more often about the necessity to hold presidential elections in Ukraine anyway, sooner or later. And Zeluzhny's popularity, today population in Ukraine, it's not so much behind Zelensky's, it is behind the army. It's the army which is the god. And Zeluzhny is the leader of that god. Samantha DeBender? I don't think it's looking very good for Zeluzhny. And if Zeluzhny goes, it doesn't look very good for Ukraine either. The reason I say this is that these rumors about Zeluzhny's potential demise have been going on for a very long time. They remind me a little bit of the rumors of when the defense minister Reznikov was going to be fired, was not fired, had resigned, hadn't resigned, and in the end he, he, ended, he did go. And I think that Zelensky has a problem. If he doesn't fire Zeluzhny at this point, he'll look weak. If he does fire him, he knows there'll be a popular uprising. The allies will not be happy. So there's a lot of speculation in a lot of Western media about what actually happened. Was he fired? Was he asked to leave? And it seems that one of the most plausible scenarios that he was asked to leave. He refused. And there was, this was also a test to see how the Western allies would react. And from everything I've read, the, rest and the Western allies reacted by saying, do not get rid of Zaluzhny. He's the best thing you have. What Zaluzhny did, which really irritated Zelensky, is he said, you're not in touch with reality on the ground. He has been saying for months now, there's a real problem, a problem with men. There are not enough men. We need to mobilize. Zelensky is reluctant to mobilize because of the political cost of mobilization. Zaluzhny is saying, we don't have enough weapons. We cannot go forward. The best we can do is build a solid defense. And, and this message has not been getting through to Zelensky properly because 
again, analysts, people on the ground are saying Zelensky is surrounded by people who are shielding him for whatever reasons from the truth on the ground. And Zaluzhny is living in this really frustrating situation. But unfortunately, he, unfortunately for, for Zaluzhny, he, he has now become a problem for Zelensky. He's popular. He's more and more critical of, of the ways... He's not directly critical, criticizing Zelensky, but his, his assertions that Zelensky doesn't know what's going on is a criticism. So Zelensky is in an impasse here. And I, my prediction is Zaluzhny will go. I don't know who will replace him. Apparently, one of the reasons he didn't leave was because nobody was willing to take his place. Who's going to want to take the place of somebody who is leading an army which is in a very difficult position? Zaluzhny leaving now, he, he goes out on a high. So this is really murky sort of you know, spider's web of Ukrainian politics that I think even the people in Kiev don't have the full picture because it is very murky and very messy. John de Gunyasti, what should Volodymyr Zelensky do? Well, I think Zaluzhny, uh, if I were Zaluzhny, I would go now because he will take the responsibility of a possible defeat. Uh, he would have the possibility to create a new party to be, uh, uh, to, to, to get, a, I mean, a political figure uh, and uh, perhaps to give some impulse to uh, Ukrainian democracy because there, there will be no election this year, so Zelensky will stay, will remain. So I think uh, I understand that um, the, there is some pressure to keep him on place, uh, the allies and uh, perhaps inside the Ukrainian system, but I think his own interest is to go now. But that I mean, that assumes he, ha he wants to be a politician from everything I'm hearing. And I don't know what, what you think, Anastasia. He, he doesn't want to be a politician. He wants to just win this war. He wants to get the war over with as a military man, not as a politician. I think one of the reasons we are not, Zelen we are not Zaluzhny is precisely that, that we are not Zaluzhny. And hence, we cannot understand that reasoning. I think Zaluzhny, first and foremost, is a military man. And as a military man in Ukraine today, you know, this is the guy who literally donated a million dollars from something he got as an inheritance to the army and made it public. So I, I think it may be signaling that he may have political ambition maybe later on. He, you know, we're going to maybe see it. Never say but never. Never say never. You know, maybe he doesn't want to face it, but, but he will, you know, but just maybe he wants to face it for later. But this essence right now, for sure, he is a military commander. And why the West wants to, him to be kept? It's not because the West doesn't know Budanov, or, but because the West knows, and as, as anybody knows, they prefer to deal with people who are competent. Zaluzhny's difference with any other candidate is that he is extraordinarily competent. He is competent, he is outspoken, he is extraordinarily popular with the troops, and he's a real strategist. He outstrategized Russia with 10 times less men and with almost no armaments in the first months, the worst months of the war. That is his, he, that's what shows who he is. Not now when nobody's giving anything and they're on their knees losing people in the trenches. And this is why the West wants to keep him. Now replace him with anything else. And he knows that. And he knows the disaster because right now for people like Zaluzhny, especially the stakes are his country. It's the Ukrainian sovereignty which is at stake. He knows he's going to be the first to be shot in the head by the Russians if they manage to take over the country. That's the stakes that these people are facing. Not the stakes of when he's going to run for presidential elections this year. They may never run for presidential elections because they may all be just shot like the men in the butcher with their heads down. Mm. That's what he's thinking. Happy to weigh in is the Kremlin.
Moscow's spokesperson assesses that the Kyiv regime has a lot of problems. Things are not going well there. It's obvious that the failed counteroffensive and the problems on the front are leading to growing contradictions among the representatives of the Kyiv regime, both the military leadership and the civilian leadership. These contradictions will grow as the special military operation continues to be successful. Uh, Dave Keating, in Brussels, um, there was all the talk about Viktor Orban this Thursday. Is there any talk about Ukraine and uh, how it's doing? So I didn't hear a lot of talk about the specifics of what's happening with the war in Ukraine. I don't get the impression that any such specifics were talked about in the room because I think the focus was so much on this funding it should also be pointed out that the funding is part of the overall EU budget and there were other changes as well, which weren't contentious, but also needed a bit of discussion here as well. But I would say generally, the, the troubles that we're seeing in terms of the kind of the personnel issues uh, happening in Ukraine, the timing is pretty bad because it's coming at the same time as there's this questioning of support both in Washington and in Brussels. Um, so I think that it's kind of a backdrop issue, but I certainly didn't hear it discussed in any specifics today. All right. And while uh, Ukraine still waits for fighter jets from the West and it stalls in its ground war, it's uh, uh, with uh, what's been a brutal uh, winter, particularly in the Donbass region. Uh, uh, the, uh, it is making canny use of both uh, foreign supplied missile systems and more and more of those homegrown drones just a day after claiming it hit an airfield in occupied Crimea, Kyiv now claiming it, it uh, used sea drones to sink a Russian corvette uh, in the Black Sea. Um, you heard a dark picture from Anastasia Shapochkina as to how the war is going. Is it that dark, though? Well, we're sort of middle of winter, so of course it's dark. <laughs> I mean, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll try and... Uh Find, find, find a little more joyful way of answering that question. Um, sea drones. Zaluzhny said in his now famous article in The Economist that what Ukraine needs is innovation, that what will win this war are not loads of men, are not heavy weapons, but technology. Yeah, well, when he talks about a technological rearmament, what does yes, he mean? Yes, well, that, that means using AI, using more sophisticated drones, using... Um, AI-powered robots on the battlefield. I was in Ukraine in December and I met a few entrepreneurs who were working to create just these kind of weapons. One entrepreneur I spoke to talk, talked about working with EU incubators to create AI-powered helicopters that, that can work in forests, that can work on the battlefield. In, in all the big wars, in World War One, you know, one of the big, some of the big changes happened when one when the Allies had a technological advantage over their enemy. And th this is the only way Ukraine really can win, because it will never have as many men as Russia. But as, as one of my contacts there said, you know, we will, we will use um, intelligence and innovation to combat Russia's meat and steel. I thought that was a beautiful expression. Whether or not they will succeed, whether or not they will succeed in time, it's too early to tell. But again, as Anastasia was saying, the way Zaluzhny, the way the Ukrainian army has been so innovative, this is an army that does not have a navy, which has more or less neutralized the Russian Black Sea Fleet. This is an army that doesn't have an air force, which is downing Russian planes. And, and, and there was a tragic incident last week, which we still don't actually know what happened with a 
the Ukrainians actually did down. Okay, in Belgorod region, this Ilyashev uh, tra military transport that went down. Well, nobody, it is, the verdict is still out as to who was actually in that plane. And the Russians have made a lot of claims. There have been counterclaims by the Ukrainians. But the Ukrainians do have the ability to, to an extent, not control the skies on their borders, but certainly make their skies very dangerous. So, again, if the Ukrainians are given a little bit more help, both in terms of weapons and in terms of funding to help this innovation, they can take this a very long way. I think the main victory of Ukraine is to maintain the, the front, uh, to, to defend the front now and to avoid any breakthrough for the, from the uh, Russian army. I think if they pass the winter, I think the situation will be better because they will receive the, uh, the equipment from uh, the planes, uh, new uh, uh, cannons and, and so on. So I think uh, most probably the, the most difficult point is perhaps uh, behind now. I think they, they hold on. That's very important because the Russians had the, uh, some hope to manage a breakthrough during the winter. It's not finished, but I think the, the main obstacle is, uh, is uh, behind us. Uh, you heard earlier Dave Keating, Anastasia Shepachkina worrying aloud about uh, ammunition. Uh, you remember the uh, Internal Markets Commissioner who had talked about this ammunitions drive. How's that going? It's not going well. I mean, the EU is, has not, is not delivering what it's promised. It's not going to, I think it's about half of what it promised in terms of ammunition deliveries. And this is something we heard a lot in the closing press conferences. The leaders are aware of this. Um, and it, it's a problem. It, it, part of the problem is that there's limited stocks in each EU country. So whatever they send, they need to make sure there's enough left uh, for their own use. And essentially, there just hasn't been enough investment for a large period of time. Uh, there's, there's various plans about what can be done about this, and the, 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 there's different ideas. Uh, but right now, it does, it does feel like we're in a, a bit of period of stasis, that there were these promises made uh, over the past two years. Uh, the Europeans can see that they're having difficulties meeting these promises, but we're, we seem to be at a bit of an impasse about what to do about that situation. All right. We've uh, got word from the White House that uh, Joe Biden has uh, picked up the telephone and called Ursula von der Leyen uh, to uh, thank uh, the uh, European Union for the 50 billion euro uh, aid for for Ukraine. And that's a reminder of an interview we saw this week with CNN, uh, the European Central Bank president, Christine Lagarde, warning Europe should brace for harsh decisions if uh, Donald Trump is uh, re-elected uh, in November. Now, she was talking about tariffs and steel and that sort of stuff. But, of course, it also applies to defense and the future of NATO. Uh, your reaction, Anastasia Shepachkina, to, to Joe Biden picking up the phone to call, mm. to call Europe? Absolutely. I think for the U.S. right now, and for Joe Biden in particular, it's essential to know that the allies are there for them. And they are not just alone, exposed, and being told that it's either you or nobody. We are nothing. We are little. We are small. This is not the discourse America understands, because this discourse may be from a small country like Ecuador, Nicaragua is appropriate, but not from the EU, which is a second economic 
power in the world and the huge defense production facilities. And uh, then when we are into this, uh, of course, logic, uh, which is today driving the discussion on weapons delivery, continued and long-term possibly weapons delivered to Ukraine, the logic of well, we should be delivering, but goodness, we are now running out of supplies. We should also make sure we have enough ourselves. It's the same type of logic as if we're coming to a baker to ask him to you know, make maybe 10 more baguettes for, oh, but for, it for, is, for a it wedding. But it is ramping up And he's slowly. saying, look, I have to make sure that I have just enough baguettes to hold on till 7 p.m. because 10 more clients make them. Just turn on the furnace and make 100 more baguettes. But you heard Jean de Grignesti, and the, the, they are slowly ramping up the Europeans. We're going to hear about more bilateral defense agreements in the coming weeks. My prediction is very simple. We're going to see with defense and Europe the same exact thing as happened with Germany and natural gas. Germany is a country notorious for its regulation, red tape, and very stringent you know, controls when it comes to serious infrastructure like natural gas one. Well, guess what? In nine months, they got completely free from Russian natural gas imports, uh, which was pipeline, and they built, they, they didn't get free from LNG imports. That's why uh, Ambassador is shaking his hand. I understand this. But they also managed, especially notoriously, to construct regasification facility, first one already, within a record time of like one year. And I think the moment Trump gets really and this has always been throughout the EU history, right? It gets strongest in the time of crisis. The crisis is going to be Trump's re-election, which is going to signal EU, the American withdrawal from geopolitics. And Europe is going to find itself alone. The moment it finds itself alone, Russia will also notice this, I think. It's going to really understand the priority today is not in healthcare and education. I'm really sorry. It's not about taking care of the elderly. It is about actually investing in defense because it's about the survival, not just of the Baltic states, but of the European Union. Because without the US, how long will this NATO thing stand? And how long, for how many minutes, is it not going to become just an abbreviation of four letters? Well, let's ask NATO alumna, uh, Samantha de Bender. Well, mm. first of all, we don't know what Donald Trump will do if he is elected. He has made a lot of noise to that have made people, other European member states of NATO, very worried. His former national security advisor, John Bolton, has warned that Trump would like to try and take the US out of NATO. And interestingly enough, at the end of last year, the Senate passed a law which would make it impossible for the president to decide to withdraw from NATO without the whole, uh, with, the, with the House and the Senate approving this. Having said this, um, regarding Europe, and I, 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 I totally agree with what you said, that European leaders are facing a terrible choice right now because there is this pressure to rearm, there is this pressure to, to, to help Ukraine, which I understand, but European voters are going to be going to the polls in June. And the likelihood is that at least nine to ten countries are going to bring in a far-right majority in the European Parliament, a far-right majority which will not be in favour of helping Ukraine, which will not be in favour of taking forward the Green Deal, and which could bring things actually backwards. So European leaders are walking on a tightrope right now in, in order to explain to Europe pop, Europe's population that we are, there's a risk in the East. Many people do not believe in that risk. It's very difficult to make people understand what that risk is. And satisfying the other needs of the population, which are healthcare, with our education, you, you cannot say to the ordinary European voter, healthcare and education are not important. They are. That is their day-to-day -day life. People think on a day-to-day -day basis, not looking into the future. 
So we need a lot of imagination from politicians to explain why both are linked. That if defence is not seen to, education and healthcare will be even worse in the future. But that's a difficult message to get across. Yeah, concessions to farmers. We talked about farmers earlier. Concessions when it comes to uh, the reorientation of, the in, of industry yes. towards yeah. defence. Uh, that uh, is certain to mean concessions on Europe's green transition a transition that might already be uh, a casualty of Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. According to the Financial Times, member states have reduced a common fund designed to spur innovation in the bloc from $10 billion to $1.5 billion and have ensured it can only be used for defense-related projects, not green technology or other climate-related investments. Uh, Jean de Grignesti, uh, it's... I think uh, Europe is... is save Europe but destroy the planet? More or less. I think Europe is in a very difficult position because it has internal political difficulties, internal economic difficulties. When you look at the economic results of uh, Germany, for instance, it's uh, um, more or less dismaying when you see the, the strength in principle the, of the uh, German, German economy. And more than that, there is a political problem for the average European uh, voter we give money, as usual, as in the Middle East, as in Ukraine, everywhere. We, we pay the orchestra, we don't set the tune. And on the long run, it's dangerous for Europe, it's dangerous for its policy. So I think there will be some uh, difficult reappraisal in the future. Well, it feels like it's a one-off, this money that uh, the EU doesn't quite know where to spend, uh, Dave Keating. It's got this post-pandemic fund that only runs till 2026. If you had to list it between green technology, between what the farmers were protesting about uh, earlier, and defense, where is that money now going to go? I think it's a big question because the commission has been extremely active on environmental legislation over the past three years because of Ursula von der Leyen's Green Deal, but we see that Green Deal being attacked even by her own party, the center-right European People's Party. They're starting to back away from it. We saw a very quick concession in getting rid of those CAP green provisions on Wednesday. I think that doesn't bode well for how strongly President von der Leyen is going to stick by her Green Deal. Uh, so it's a big question, especially when we have this leftover money uh, from uh, uh, Repower You from uh, from the uh, from the COVID funding. Uh, where is that priority going to be? Will von der Leyen stick with the the Green Deal with the policies she's put in place and with the emphasis she's put in place on solving the problem of climate change? All signals point to political motivations for her being the opposite. She is very clearly going to seek a second term. In order to get that second term, she needs the approval of national governments, and she needs the approval of her own center-right European People's Party. The political incentives are all for her to back away from uh, environmental legislation at this moment. And when it comes to uh, defense, then, uh, how all-in is, uh, is the European Union? I think that's another big question for sure, uh, because we've had a lot of talk about EU defense union. There were, there were a lot of big movements made, unprecedented movements in the months after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But since then, the energy has kind of cooled on EU defense. I think as we get closer to the US election and the prospect 
of Donald Trump being elected. I think that talk is going to spur, as was said before, the EU tends to act in crisis and the election of Donald Trump would be a crisis for the European Union. So it may be that that energy behind establishing EU defense may pick up, but we've definitely seen it lag, I would say, for the past year after a big spurt following Russia's invasion. And Dave, just in one word, right now, what do the polls suggest when it comes to those June elections? They are suggesting a big gain for the far right, looking at maybe a third of the parliament. That could be enough to disrupt the traditional centrist alliance, which governs the European parliament as a majority. It could be that the centrist parties don't have enough seats. And then you you may have to have a tie up between the center right and the far right controlling the parliament. It could make for a very difficult majority formation process in the months after June. And that in turn will impact who could be approved as European Commission president. And that brings us back to what was agreed to this uh, Thursday. Uh, Anastasia Shapochkina, this 50 billion euro uh, lifeline with the prospect of the elections coming up here in Europe, in the United States. It got in. It's a four-year plan. It got in before that. How important is it? It's important because, of course, uh, it's a four-year plan. But what, from what I understood from the announcements, they are going to give the money up front. And then there's going to be basically in a sense that it's, it's going to be slated already, all of it. It's not going to be given in by piecemeal. As a safeguard. Considered, exactly. Just to make sure that that cannot be played out later after the election. So I think that question is out uh, of the table. As concerning the, the Green Deal, if I may, just two, two, two words to, re- to return to this. To me, uh, you know, the, uh, Putin's invasion, pretty much it, it solved two big problems, global. Uh, Putin ended COVID and it took the global warming down with it, basically. Uh, because, and the European Commission has acknowledged this in the strategic document it issued immediately a few a couple of weeks after the invasion in March 20, 2022, which is Repower EU. It was the next kind of chapter of the Green Deal where it says, first, we are going to be slower uh, inadvertently because of the crisis, because of the our over-dependence on Russian gas, we'll now have to reposition ourselves. We're going to be slower on the fulfillment of our goals. Coal is back in the game. And nuclear is back in the game. Good news for France, of course, and for other players. And uh, uh, then uh, check out biomass and everything, which is pretty much means wood logging right mm. in Central Europe. And all of these things are new. And all of these things are already in the strategic document since early 2020, which was then elaborated into in, in the communication 2020 and elaborated May 2022, just to say that this is absolutely something that's already and of was bound to happen. You cannot change the whole energy kind of expert market and have no consequence for the Green Deal. I think the Commission understands this. All right. And uh, many more uh, place, uh, dominoes to fall in place What with uh, what's going on on the front line. Anastasia Shapochkina, I want to thank you. I want to thank Samantha de Bender and Jean de Grignesti, our correspondents in Brussels, Dave Keating. Thank you for being with us here in the France 24 debate.